rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to episode 187 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I'm going to continue my run through season three of The Adventures of Superboy, covering episodes 11 and 12 of season three. One is going to be a take on a very familiar story. The first episode, Superboy Lost, will tell us the story of what happened to Superboy when he suffers amnesia after destroying an asteroid. Does that sound familiar? It should. And the episode Special Effects, which we'll bring back for his final appearance in this television show, Elon Mitchell-Smith as Andy McAllister. But before I get to those two episodes, I have feedback to address. Feedback is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 176. And Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Like you, when I first saw the title Microboy, I wondered if he was a shrinking hero. The name reminded me of Microlad, the name preferred by the rebooted Colossal Boy, the Legion of Superheroes, and the... 2004 reboot of the Legion. That character was one of a race of giants, and he had the power to shrink down to the quote-unquote tiny height of six feet. That the microwave of this episode gained his powers from microwaves made sense based on the popularity of microwave ovens. But the eventual fate of Hector, microboy Hornsby, being transported into the past where there were fewer microwaves on Earth doesn't necessarily give him a long-remaining lifespan. Radar, which uses microwaves, would be developed during World War II in the 1940s. And microwave relays for telecommunications would develop in the 1950s and 60s. So, assuming Hector was around 20 when he arrived in 1903, he might start feeling the effects of increased microwave activity in his early 60s. At least he'd have the excitement of two world wars and the Great Depression to look forward to. I liked Run, Dracula, Run better. It was good to see Dr. Byron Shelley again, even though he seemed, at least for a while, to be losing his fight against his vampirism. Side note, if you'd like to uh, read about a vampire struggling against his nature to fight for good, I recommend the Nantle Cade series of novels by Christopher Farnsworth, beginning with Blood Oath. It's about a vampire who struggles against his thirst for drinking human blood and has been bound by magic since the time of President Andrew Johnson to obey the President of the United States. I don't always like to see Superboy slash Superman fight supernatural foes like vampires, but I do like it when they're struggling themselves to work for good rather than evil. I'm guessing we may not see Dr. Shelley again, but I have enjoyed the character. Live long and prosper, Dave. So, as always, I thank you, Dave, for writing in. Uh, yeah, I don't have a ton to add about Microboy. I've said everything I needed to say about Microboy during my coverage of the episode. It didn't even occur to me of a connection to the uh, Legion, because I haven't really read a whole ton of the rebooted Le- Legion of Superheroes from 2004. I read some of it. I think I read the issues where uh, Supergirl went into the future, but Microboy must not made made much of an impression on me. And, yes, I do recall microwaves were kind of coming into their own at this time. Maybe it showed up a few years early. I don't exactly remember when they showed up. But, you know, not having a necessarily long remaining lifespan, uh, World War II is still 40 years away. So he might be maybe around 60, starts feeling the effects of uh, microwaves, but maybe not in the intensity that he would in 1990. Still, to live 
40 years microwave-free is much more of a future than he would have had if he stayed in the present. And plus, he got to put his skills to good use with the Wright brothers, and uh, perhaps he built a life with the uh, Lana double. So things ended for Hector in the past far better than they would have in the present. Uh, yes, uh, Run Dracula Run was a better episode, and I did enjoy seeing Dr. Shelley again. And while Dave points out that he seemed to be losing his fight against vampirism, Dave, did you miss that he was losing his fight because he was mugged at the beginning of the episode and lost the serum that controls his thirst? And so without his quote-unquote medicine, he relapsed. And honestly, I'm not really big on vampire stories either. If this show is difficult of anything, it's propping out Superboy's two main weaknesses, kryptonite and magic, far too much. I mean, I've mentioned this before. Every time uh, Lex Luthor and Superboy come in contact, uh, Lex whips out a chunk of kryptonite. And there are plenty of magic episodes as well. Too many. I mean, we've already seen two episodes with vampires. Uh, We're going to see a werewolf in a few weeks toward the end of season three. We've seen the energy being in season two and the power of evil episode. Just far too much magic and mystical stuff and too much kryptonite. This show does overuse some of those tropes a little bit. And you're right, Dave, we are not going to see Dr. Shelley again. He only appeared in these two episodes. So while I have enjoyed the character as well, I'm not necessarily going to miss him. So that's pretty much all I've got on that. If you'd like to write it to manascreen at gmail.com. But now I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. And when I come back, Superboy Lost. Hang around, folks. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You Starfleet officers, now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. Gonna start this episode off with Superboy Lost. Original broadcast date, December 15th, 1990. This is also the last episode to air in 1990. It was directed by Richard J. Lewis and written by Michael Moore. Guest cast included Sarah Essex as Marissa, Kevin Quigley as Damon. We've seen Kevin Quigley once before. He was Tucker in Superstar back in Season 2. Juan Chaos as John. Kevin Corrigan as the Ranger. Paul Sutera as Jeremy. Sean Paget as Rosemary, and Ron Olson as the un- as the newscaster. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. Everyone at the Bureau watches a news report detailing a meteor's collision course with Earth as Superboy live- flies into space to intercept it. The broadcast reports that radar contact with Superboy is lost just before he collides with the meteor and it disintegrates, sending the boy of steel falling back to Earth. 
A woman named Marissa and her son Jeremy are fishing in the woods and come across Superboy lying on the shore of the river, unconscious. Are you okay? Who are you? At the Bureau, the news broadcast reported that Superboy's whereabouts are unknown, and while Lana worries, Jackson figures he'll show up sooner or later. In the woods, Superboy, wearing a shirt and pants over his costume, wakes up in a small shack where Marissa is cooking dinner. Hey, hey, easy. Give it some time. I'm Marissa. This is my son, Jeremy. Hi. We're both a little rusty on conversation. We've been out here for about five years. You're our first visitor. Uh, this book has helped me get Jeremy through mumps and measles and a broken wrist. And under amnesia, it says that your memory usually returns to you in a day or two. So let's get you something to eat. Come on, sit down. you make that all by yourself? Jeremy, I said not in the house. Why don't you go out and get us some firewood? He hates it out here. He's mad at me for taking him away from the city. So why don't you go back? I want him to learn how to survive. Take charge of himself. That's something he can use for his future. Did you build this place? Mm, it's part of an abandoned hunting lodge. I fixed it up. I like it here. Eat your dinner. Don't you miss civilization? What's there to miss? Bills? Traffic jams? Smog? Forks? While Jeremy is collecting firewood, he is stalked by a man who then abducts him. Superboy's hearing picks up on it, and he and Marissa go outside to try and stop them. The man throws Jeremy into an old SUV and takes off, and Superboy is hit when he tries to stop him. The man jumps out and is confused about seeing the dent as Jeremy runs into his mother's arms. Superboy pounds the man to a tree until something inside him makes him hold back, but he lets him go. He asks who the man was, but Marissa claims ignorance. Back at the bureau, Lana's worrying about Superboy's fate continues. Thinking about Superboy? Yeah. You'll turn up. Well, the news reports haven't been very encouraging. Come on. Remember who we're talking about here? I'm sure you're right. <laughs> In the woods, Jeremy is teaching Superboy how to catch frogs. His x-ray vision and super speed instantly scores a catch, astonishing his new friend. Then Marissa tosses some belongings into a rowboat and tells Jeremy they should leave, but Jeremy refuses. Jeremy, I said get in the boat. I don't want to. This is because of what happened yesterday, isn't it? No. You knew who that guy was. No, this is none of your business. Ow! I'm sorry. It's all right. 
My husband sent them. Your husband? I was only 16. A runaway. Damon had like this, this little family. They took me in and gave me food. But after a while, you know, little by little, I began to see him for what he really was. He lived off those people, ran them with fear and intimidation. And there was no way I was going to have that for my son. So I ran. I had to. I had to run all the way out here just to get away from him. He is a very dangerous man. I don't want to go back. You won't have to. Are you crazy? Now that they know where we live, they'll send others. They'll kill you. All I know is you need me right now. You can't keep running forever. Well, then we'll need these. I took them when I left. Hoped I'd never need them. I hope so, too. What about your other life? Don't you want to go back? I'm in no hurry. At another house in the woods, Damon punishes the man for his failure to kidnap Jeremy. Superboy and Marissa talk. You remember anything yet? Well, take your time. It's good for Jeremy to have a man around. I don't mind either. You don't even know me. I don't even know myself. Well, I know you're not like anyone I've ever met before. You're sweet, gentle, innocent. Thanks. I mean, but there's other things here, like these clothes. In my hearing, it's so sensitive I can hear a pin drop. In my eyes. I just can't help feeling there's some purpose for all this. Maybe your purpose is to be with us. As they almost kiss, Jeremy screams as a group of people are trying to take him again. Superboy fires a shot into the air to stop them. But they see right through him and know that he won't follow through, so they take off with Jeremy. They leave in the SUV, and as Superboy runs after them, his running takes him in flight. Meanwhile, at the Bureau, Matt tries to console Lana, but she feels that he's still alive. At Damon's house, one of Damon's men reads a newspaper headline about Superboy's disappearance. <laughs> well, it looks like they've written off Superboy. <laughs> Superboy? Well, you have been out in the jungle a long time, haven't you, kid? <laughs> Hello, Jeremy. Don't be afraid. Touch me, you're just a con man. Sounds like your mother's been filling your head with lies. You're the liar. You've been lying to all these people. I hate you! Damon puts his hands on him, and Superboy hears his screams and crashes through the door. He angles Damon's men as they attack him. Bullets bounce off Superboy as one of the men shoots at him. 
Damon holds Jeremy while pointing a rifle at Superboy, and the heat vision kicks in and burns Damon. He then pounds Damon into a wall until he passes out, and then flies away with Jeremy. Superboy returns to the shack and, with Jeremy and tells Marissa what just happened. I can't explain it, but I can fly. Bullets bounce off me. I can burn things with my eyes. No one will ever bother us again. I want to stay with you. No. You can't stay. You can't. Be all right now. Back at the Bureau, Lana is still holding out hope until Superboy arrives at the doorway. They both smile at each other and breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, so. This episode is going to borrow an old and familiar concept from the George Reeves Adventures of Superman episode from 1953, the asteroid that gives Superman amnesia. This time, though, the the asteroid is going to be destroyed in the first few minutes in the episode. Basically, just kind of a teaser. And then the plot of the episode starts after the first commercial break. So we learn immediately that there is a problem with the meteor and that it has an alloy that makes it quite dense. And uh, this bit with the newscast talking about Superboy flying into space kind of reminds me of what Lois and Clark will do with a similar story in a couple years. So Superboy will collide with the asteroid and destroy it and then tumbles back to Earth. The problem with this episode is that it destroys the asteroid during the teaser, but the effects remain. And then it just becomes this entire Superboy with no memory storyline for the entirety of the episode. And there's nothing hanging over Superboy to kind of get his memory back. It's just that it'll come back when it comes back. and we just kind of move on into this storyline as this woman and her son who we're going to learn on Marissa and Jeremy are fishing and they kind of find Superboy having crashed and doesn't know who he is. And they don't recognize him either. That should be the first clue that there's something different about these two people. And he's shocked by his clothes, looking around, his hair is a little messy. You know, re-entry will do that to you. So. And then we get a couple of uh, obligatory cuts back to the uh, Bureau for Extra Normal Matters. Jackson is glad that the media stuff is over, but Lana is worried about Superboy. Jackson really isn't. At least not at this point. A little too soon to be worried. So uh, 
Marissa and Jeremy are living in this cabin in the woods, and they conveniently have clothes that are the perfect fit for a Superboy. Isn't that convenient? Marissa is friendly enough, but Jeremy is a bit of a grumpy kid. Apparently, he's uh, the first visitor they've had in five years, and uh, his social skills are somewhat lacking. So Superboy asks Jeremy about a bow and arrow that he's working on, and I don't know if it's carelessness or if he's trying to shoot at him, but uh, Jeremy shoots an arrow at the wall, missing Superboy. A few feet hits the wall above him, but that gets Jeremy sent outside to look for firewood. So Marissa and Jeremy have been in the woods for five years, and Jeremy's unhappy about it. I mean, what kid would? I figure he, he looks like he's about somewhere between 10 and 13, so I'm not sure I'd be happy about living in the woods with no human contact either. She tells him she fixed up an abandoned hunting lodge, and she likes living in the jungle. I mean, she doesn't miss bills, traffic jams, and smog, but Superboy misses the simple things in life, like a fork. And uh, there's this other guy in the woods that abducts Jeremy. Of course, all this happens as Superboy happens to be here. You know, this stuff could have happened at any time, but it happens in the two days a memoryless Superboy happens uh, to be there. It's one of the many coincidences this episode is built on. Which makes the whole plotline kind of contrived. You know, just a free coincidence that, like I said, Damon hatches this plot to kidnap his son in like the two-day span that Superboy is in the woods with Marissa. And now when Superboy runs out, you can tell that he's wearing the costume under his clothes. So apparently, you know, I'm not going to say that Marissa dressed him because he was conscious when, uh, they, when they found him. He probably walked into the cabin himself. But he's doing things that are somewhat familiar to him. He's putting clothes on over his costume. I mean, yeah, you could make the argument that he's got Clark Kent clothes in his cape pocket if you want to go there. But you look at this outfit. He's wearing, you know, basically, he's not dressed the way Clark Kent would ordinarily dress. He is uh, dressed like he's going hunting with kind of like a woodsman shirt. And I think he's actually wearing camo pants and boots. So Superboy goes after Jeremy, dents the truck, and the abductor attacks him. And... The abductor, whose name is Jonathan, tries to stab Superboy, but the knife won't penetrate his skin. It just kind of gets stuck. I would have rather seen the knife shatter here on Superboy's invulnerable skin, but Superboy responds by kind of banging the guy onto the tree and throwing him to the ground, which allows him to get away, which doesn't make Jeremy happy in the least bit. Jeremy was kind of hoping Superboy would finish the job. So Superboy comments that something inside of him made him hold back when Jeremy questions it. So, even though he's amnesiac, his morality remains. So he's still working off some kind of instinct, even though he has no memory of who he is. But having no memory of who he is, he's got to be wondering why he's wearing that uncomfortable skin tight costume and then it's his clothes. But, you know, he's apparently going with it and uh, not complaining. It didn't dawn on him to take it off when he uh, got dressed. So, now we we have another uh, scene of Lana being worried about Superboy and... Now, Matt tries to uh, reassure her that he's okay. There are going to be two scenes like that. You know, Stacey Heideck, uh, Peter J. Fernandez, and uh, Robert Levine need to cash their paychecks this week. So now back in the woods, Jeremy is teaching Superboy to catch frogs with, when Superboy's X-ray vision kicks in. And he sees a frog and catches it, which impresses the hell out of Jeremy. But after uh, their moment of male bonding, Marissa is getting in the boat, throwing some stuff in there, and she says that they're leaving when... All of a sudden, Superboy and Jeremy are starting to get a little attached. And uh, Superboy doesn't know his own strength yet either, as he's trying to uh, get Marissa to talk to him, and he accidentally squeezes her arm too tight. But he knows that she's not telling the truth about what happened yesterday. So Superboy does describe it as yesterday. So this is definitely his second day in the woods. I should have paid better attention to what Lana's wardrobe and uh, 
at the bureau because it seemed like a whole lot of time passed there. But, but eventually, uh, you know, like I said, Superboy knows that Marissa's lying, and she relents and tells him that the attacker was sent by her husband. And now we learn uh, Marissa's, uh, I'm not going to say life story, but, you know, story up to this point. She's probably, she's older than Superboy, at least in her late 20s, almost 30. So she's probably got almost 10 years on him, when you think about it, even though she doesn't look it. So we learn that she was a 16-year-old runaway, and she got sucked into this cult run by Damon who ran his cult with fear and intimidation. She refers to it as a quote-unquote family, but I guess this show is a 2PG for the word cult. So she ran away with Jeremy and hid in the woods from Damon. She ran away five years ago, so... She says she didn't want Jeremy to be around that, so I don't get it. It seems like uh, if she didn't want Jeremy to be around that, Jeremy would be a lot younger than he is here. Like I said before, he looks like he's about 10 to 13. So it's clear that she waited a while to run. Maybe she didn't have the opportunity... Maybe it took a long time to plan her escape. I don't know. I don't know. All kinds of questions with, with this episode and some of the uh, time frames. Not only is it, why did it take her so long to leave Damon? Why did it take Damon so long to find them? And how did he find them? Did he think she ran into the woods? Did they just kind of search the woods for forever until they crashed into them? What if they weren't there? A lot of things this episode happened basically because they were in the script. So apparently, uh, Damon takes care of all the needs of his followers. He's, uh, we see him and his followers for the first time kind of sitting in this living room. He's, uh, cutting an apple with a knife, uh, talking about how he takes care of all these people, kind of sitting around while his, uh, people are around him. And apparently, this is something that's happened before. The cultists are enthralled, and John has failed, and Damon is pissed, and John is shaking like a leaf because he, uh, knows something bad is about to happen to him. So Damon expresses his disappointment by carving an X into Jonathan's forehead with a knife and then kicks him the hell out. Doesn't kill him, just tosses him away. So Superboy still doesn't remember anything yet, and he's in no hurry to leave. He could get used to living here, but he feels there was a reason for his powers and abilities, as Marissa suggests that the reason is to stay there in the woods. Not sure that's what Superboy had in mind, but I think he's finding the idea very attractive at this point. He has no idea who he is. So he has nothing really to go back to. He's not he knows of. And you see Superboy and Mercer getting closer. And the kiss is interrupted by uh, the rest of Damon's people. Where one failed, now Damon just sends the whole his whole group. Everyone except him. So Superboy has the gun that Mercer hands to him. And he fires a shot to get everyone's attention. But Superboy won't. While he'll fire a shot in the air, he won't shoot the cultists. And they make off with Jeremy and leave Marissa behind. So Superboy runs after the jeep that they're in, and he's stumbling and bumbling, and he kind of, as he's running, he takes off. And then I guess muscle memory kicks in, and he, uh, he knows how to fly, because once he's off the ground and knows he can fly, he's fine. But there's a little bit of a kind of his legs and arms flailing in different directions as he gets used to the fact that he's airborne. But I guess it feels natural to him, because he flies perfectly. So now we get another worrying Lana scene, which adds nothing to the episode other than a, other than 30 seconds. I guess, if anything, it sets up the ending of the episode where Superboy and Lana just kind of stare at each other. So now we learn that Superboy has been around less than five years, because one of these guys is reading a newspaper about Superboy being lost, and feared dead. And Jeremy has no idea who that is, and upon seeing the picture, Jeremy recognizes Superboy as his new house guest. So here comes Dad, who, like I mentioned, played by Kevin Quigley, Tucker from Back in Superstar. Jeremy hates him, and Superboy bursts through the wall and uh, fights off the cultist. One shoots him and the bullet has no effect. I guess this is Rosemary, the uh, woman here, and uh, she is freaked out by the bullet. 
bouncing off of it. So, for all you people who like to ridicule the glasses not being enough to hide Clark Kent from Superboy, why is it these cultists, as soon as a bullet bounces off of him, not recognize this as Superboy because even though because just because he's not in costume? It goes to something I've said for a long time. When people see Superboy, or Superman for that matter, they do not see him. They see the costume, the cape, and the S. They do not see his face in any kind of lasting sense. It's almost like the thing where nobody really recognized Henry Cavill when he walked through New York City with a big billboard of himself standing uh, above Times, Times Square. As soon as that bullet bounced off him, they should have realized that this was Superboy, even though he's not in costume. But they don't. She just freaks out because she thinks he's weird. So Superboy gets over his surprise, and then his heat vision goes off, burning Damon's wrist. The miracle he didn't kill anybody with uh, random heat vision, but, you know, script. So Superboy slams Damon against the flimsy wall, and they fly off. <laughs> and really, when Char Christopher is slamming uh, Kevin quickly against this wall, you could tell it's a prop wall. Walls don't react like that. You could tell it's almost, you could tell it's probably plywood. Or something like that. And plus, if Superboy th- shoved somebody through a wall that hard, he'd go through the wall. So, I guess it is what it is. Don't want to hurt the actor. So, they go back. Superboy decides he's going to stay in the woods with Marissa and Jeremy. But now Jeremy knows the truth. And the truth is, he can't stay with them. And he hands Superboy the paper. And he sees his, and seeing his name with the headline and the picture of himself in the suit. Reminds him of who he is, and as the music swells, Gerard Christopher starts to open the shirt that he's wearing, been wearing for two days, and decides it's time for him to go home. Fortunately, Marissa and Jeremy will be okay because the cultists have been taken care of. I don't know if they've been sent, if the police were sent, or maybe he just scared the shit out of them and uh, they're not going to come back, or maybe Marissa and Jeremy are going to leave, which will probably be the, best, the smartest thing for them because now Damon knows where they are. So. Superboy walks past the tree and the outfit disappears. It's definitely the camera moves around the tree. So it's probably a combination of two shots, just like uh, in Metallo when he went into the building and a person walked by to disguise the cut. The movement of the camera probably hit the cut and Superboy comes out in costume. So now dissolve to Lana, who was crying when Superboy shows up. He looks at her and smiles and everybody smiles. And we know it's all going to be okay. So... This is another episode that I recorded the videotape, so I knew it pretty well. It's hurt by the lack of a meteor throughout the story, so there's no real threat beyond Damon, and like I said before, no real urgency for Superboy to get his memories back, like there are in, in the other two versions of this concept. But I did li- what I did like was him discovering his powers while amnesiac and seeing that muscle memory really does apply. I am no big fan of the Rick Grayson arc in the uh, recent Nightwing comics, but that kind of did the same thing a little bit, even though, you know, eventually enough people told him he was Nightwing, but uh, even though he doesn't remember his past life, he still has muscle memory, so little seeing this kind of did remind me of that a little bit. And, you know, him discovering his powers while amnesiac is maybe something I would have liked to have seen a little bit in uh, Panic in the Sky, maybe something with his strength or something, but we don't see any accidents of that during the George Reeves show. The only indicator was really that he had no scratches after he fell through the shower door, but that's not something he would have noticed, so... That's it. That's all I got in that episode. You know, not bad, but, you know, it's memorable because it adapts the meteorite story, but it kind of doesn't. It's memorable because it invokes the asteroid story, but doesn't really do anything with it. It's just kind of a catalyst to launch us into this other random plot of basically what hap- what Superboy does while he's getting his memory back. So well, that's it. 
I'm going to take a break and play another promo. When I come back, we're going to have some special effects. Hang around, folks. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes or crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every Penny. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to finish this episode off with special effects. Original broadcast date was January 5th, 1991. Coincidentally, I am releasing this episode on the 30th anniversary of the original broadcast date. I did not plan this. I had no idea it would happen this way, but it's just one of those cool coincidences that it's happening this way. Now, if only I can get one of those lowest o'clock Christmas episodes to, to drop at the, around Christmas time, I'll be golden. This episode was directed by David Grossman, written by Elliot Anderson. Guest cast include Richard Marcus as Max Van Norman, Barry Myers as Caliban. We are mostly familiar with Barry Myers as Bizarro. Good to see him getting some work in other episodes. Our old buddy Elon Mitchell Smith as Andy McAllister, Clark's roommate from season two. Bill Cordell as the writer. Denise Lecce as Risa. Jim Cordes as Lou Lloyd. Rob Berman as Ajax. Carla Neeland as Ingenui, Orinjano, Bodie Plekis as Robin Melville, Andrea Lively as Mrs. Watson, and Danny Gura as Tommy, and Candace Rice as the script girl. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. At a production studio, a movie director is working until a creature in a black cloak and hood stands before him. The man thinks it is a wardrobe mistake and starts to complain when the creature lifts him off his feet by his throat and killing him. At the bureau, Jackson and Matt overhear Lana and Clark talk about how they're not being assigned any field cases because the senior staff feels threatened by it. They're afraid that if we go out into the field, we'll do a better job than them. Lana, I think they just want us to be a little more experienced first. Do you really believe that? No. Kent! Lang! I've got something for you. The Lloyd case. The movie director? Supposed to have been killed by some kind of a monster. I just filed that one. No, there was a witness. You want me to file that too? No, I want the two of you to go out and interview <coughs> Us? Or I could send Matt. No, 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 we'll do it. Dennis, you are a real... They go to the home of a boy who claims that he saw the monster kill the director. My dad works at the studio. He lets me come to work with him sometimes. I'm going to be a director. But Tommy, what about the monster? Oh, yeah. Like I was saying, I heard this guy scream on stage 21. I looked in, and I saw it. The monster! It was choking him. Like this. Oh! Tommy! 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 Okay, okay. And then it just ran away. Did anybody else see it? No. Just me. You don't believe me, do you? Tommy, it's just that we... I'll show you! This is 
what I saw? That's just from a movie. It's not real. Hey, I've got an IQ of 145. I've skipped two grades in school, and I'm at advanced expert level at Turbo Kong. I know if something's real or not. Okay, but what's your IQ? At the studio, a snooty woman drives up, talking on her cellular phone, and chewing out the person on the other end. When the signal fails, she goes to a phone booth, where she's attacked by another monster. Clark and Lana talk to a man whose makeup and costumes were stolen to commit the murders. Two people have been killed. One of them by something that looked like this thing. This, this isn't a thing. It's a man wearing makeup. A man who's been in Vancouver all summer. Anybody can wear makeup. Oh, that's a good point. That's what I told the police. The police? Yeah, you know those guys in uniforms that investigate murders? They came by a few days ago asking the same questions you're asking. And what did you tell them? I told them somebody broke into my house last month and stole some masks and prosthetics. I thought it was a fan. But apparently it was some kind of psycho. Maybe whoever it is is both. It's a fine line in this business. Doesn't it bother you that somebody's out there in your makeup killing people? It would be if people were dying. But they are. No. They're producers and directors, not people. All right, everybody, right on the set. Ooh, a little bitter, huh? On set, a man and a woman act out a scene. When she flubs her lines, the actor gets upset and wants her gone, and, and she storms off the stage. The actor mouths off to the director, Max Van Norman, as he leaves the set. Then a familiar voice is heard off stage. Andy McAllister. It's hard to believe he's the same guy that does all those commercials for the South American orphans, huh? Andy! What are you doing here? Well, it's a part-time job, but you know, I figure in a year, I'll be directing. Only a year? I'm gold at this place. Hey, McAllister, what about that coffee? Um, I'm right on it. That's what you said an hour ago. He doesn't think you're gold. Yeah, like he counts, he's just a writer. So what are you guys up to? We're here to see Max von Norman. Oh yeah, Max, he's the greatest. Oh, and such a happy guy too. Well, it's an occupational hazard, you know. Six months ago he couldn't get arrested, and now he's a genius. While the male actor is in his dressing room, he is attacked by a gerbil-like creature. As it escapes, it bumps into a woman whose screams are heard by Clark, Lana, and Andy. Clark x-rays the costume and sees that it's not occupied by a person. He goes into a trailer and comes out of Superboy. He flies in and fights the creature, knocking it off its feet. Van Norman comes in and incinerates it with the flamethrower. Clark returns until he and Lana figure that Van Norman prematurely killed the creature to keep any secrets on the wraps. In one of the rooms of his mansion, Van Norman holds an award he earned while begrudgingly speaking about his accomplishments in the film industry. Best special effects in a horror film. Do they think this can make up for all those years of abuse? <laughs> the humiliation, the insults. Do they think they can buy my friendship with this? Six months ago, I was dirt. Now everybody wants me to work on their films, to be at their parties, to have lunch with them. And I go along, smiling, kissing their cheeks. But all that stops tonight. Caliban. Where is Ajax? Ajax. He was killed by Superboy. He was sent by the ones who are going to be here tonight. No, no more killing. Now that was our bargain. 
You do what I tell you to do, just like you did for my father. Then... Your father never asked us to kill for him. That's it. You want to stop. You want to go back to where he found you? Good. Then let's go. You've got a busy day. At the studio, while, while Andy tells Clark about Superboy's encounter with Ajax, Caliban hides amongst a collection of masks and overhears the truth that Van Norman killed him. As they go outside, Lana pulls up in a golf cart with another man. Andy wants Lana to go with him but, and Clark to view some tapes with the monster, but Lana is pulled away to a party at Van Norman's mansion. As Clark and Andy prepare to watch the tapes, Lana and the man arrive at the party. As soon as they enter the mansion, Lana runs upstairs and snoops around. At the studio, Andy recognizes the monster on one of the videotapes when Caliban walks into the room. At the mansion, Lana walks into the room where the creatures are hiding. Van Norman walks in after her, and then one of the creatures grabs her. Clark's returned to the studio with pizzas and sees that Andy is gone. When he finds the cover of the videotape that Andy was watching and sees that it was made by Van Norman, he changes to Superboy and takes off. At the mansion, Van Norman is about to force Lana through the dimensional portal when Superboy crashes through the door. This is what all the others are going to get. Only you're going to be first! <laughs> What is that? You know, I've always been afraid to ask that question. What's back there? It's kind of like a different dimension. My father found it. That's why his monsters always look so real. They were real. Get him. He killed Ajax. Stop. Or he dies. My friend, you are free to go. What are you doing? You lied. Superboy didn't kill Ajax. You did. No, wait, Caliban, I can explain. Ask him. He saw. No, wait, wait. No, no, stop. Magic. Okay, this episode is not as good as the first one I covered, and you know, it's a fun kind of monster romp. I'm not sure who, when these stories are broken or when the scripts are written, but this might have been a better episode to kind of launch around Halloween instead of New Year's. Ironically, I'm recording this episode on October 29th two days before Halloween, but that's beside the point. I mean, you know, once in a while, some shows will try to do a spookier type episode around Halloween, and this would have been a good opportunity for this show to do that, but it's uh, not to be. We are at the studio here, and the director looks like he's setting up shots for either the next day or later in the day. Either way, he's uh, the only one there, aside from whoever is uh, jingling some chains, and now he hears a boom like something dropped. I personally hate when that happens, but he gets right back to work. So the director is scared and uh, someone dressed, who we think is dressed in a movie costume as a monster sneaks up and scares him. At least he thinks it's a person in a movie costume. He's complaining that the makeup job doesn't look right. 
250. So we know from the synopsis, the synopsis, this is Caliban. And we know that from what we learned later in the episode that Max Van Norman's father used these monsters in his movies in the 50s. So maybe the 250s remark is kind of is a little more on the nose than I thought at first. But it's not makeup, like I said. And uh, the creature kills the director and off he goes. And uh, fun fact, that's Barry Meyer, bizarre, like under all that makeup. Now, I mentioned before in the synopsis and in the guest cast list, Elon Mitchell Smith returns as Andy McAllister in this episode. And this is one of those episodes where where Screen Actors Guild rules kind of ruin surprises. It'll happen later in the year with Star Trek Next Generation with the Unification episode where you see eventually on part one and Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock, which in a way ruins the end of the episode where he shows up. And I'm not <laughs> saying by any stretch of the imagination that, that Andy McAllister is an uh, iconic character like Mr. Spock, but... When you see Elon Mitchell Smith as Andy McAllister in Big Bowl Letters, if you're a fan of the show, it ruins the surprise that a character that you might have loved but are at least familiar with is back for an episode. And it ruins that surprise. Not that I was dying to see Andy again anyway, but, you know, somebody might have been. I mean, now the show has moved on to season three in the Bureau and we've got Dennis Jackson and Matt Ritter filling out the cast. I really don't miss him, but I'm not. that doesn't mean it wasn't good to see him again. Just wish it wasn't spoiled. I don't remember this episode. I might have seen it, but I haven't. I didn't see season two as a kid. So if I saw this when I was a kid, seeing Andy meant would have meant nothing to me. So Lana is upset that the workers, uh, the senior workers at the bureau, won't let she and Clark uh, do field work, and uh, she thinks they're scared because she thinks they'll do a better job than the uh, workers will. Uh, the arrogance of youth, and you know, maybe the hungriness of youth as well. You know, sometimes younger workers are eager to do their jobs well because they want to get their break while, you know, someone who's been there for a while, you know, I'm not saying this is of everybody, but you, you do run into people in the, uh, in the workforce that are just uh, going through the motions every day. But Clark says not, that's not the case. And uh, when she asks if he believes that he, he says no. So I don't know if he agrees with Lana or if he's just toying with her, but and then all of a sudden out of the, uh, out of nowhere, Jackson shows up with an assignment for them to, investigate the uh, movie director being killed by a monster and it seems like matt and dennis were in on this together as uh they come out with that assignment just as clark and lana were talking about this so clark and lana are go to the director's house and ask to the, the wife here i believe it's mrs watson to see her quote-unquote husband but this kid is the person to talk to so apparently tommy here is going to be a director of his own and uh tommy is uh the witness that uh, he's a kid and this is why Lana and Clark got the gig. Clearly, none of the uh, experienced agents at the Bureau wanted to do this. So, Lana and Clark got the crap work. And Tommy uh, shows the monster from a movie called The Screaming Room that looks like Caliban. That's probably a movie he appeared in. And he's a smart kid that lords that over Lana when she disputes his case by saying the person on the poster is a monster. So, they don't take him seriously, but uh, Tommy kind of puts the two adults kind of in their place. Not a great scene, but it's definitely a way to uh, get Lana and Clark into the field, and we're not going to see Tommy after this. So now we have this woman who's complaining into a cell phone and being argumentative, you know, very snooty, very uh, self-important, has a huge cell phone, you know, 1991, those those phones were huge. And another monster attacks, attacks her when she goes to the phone booth after her cell signal dies. He uh, does not look uh, like the guy from the movie poster. So now we know that there are multiple monsters. Okay. And then we hear that someone broke into Max's house. Uh, Max is uh, the makeup artist. Uh, 
if you remember back from the beginning, uh, the director was uh, yelling uh, about Max, and we're going to meet Max in a minute. Max uh, doesn't like producers and directors, and doesn't consider them people. That's why he really could give a shit about the two people that the monsters have killed so far. Well, at least we don't know. But what we don't know at this point, and we'll know later, is that Max is behind their deaths. So, meanwhile, we're getting a display of a uh, bad acting. Uh, the uh, male lead is a bit of an bit of an asshole, and he's uh, bitching about this uh, woman who can't act. And uh, all that is meant to show is that the actor is going to get what's coming to him. And uh, we hear a voice in the background, and it's our buddy Andy. You know, of course, Andy likes. Max. Andy's never been the greatest judge of character. He thinks Max is the best. So the actor who had to deal with his uh, horrible co-star is angry and is killed by something that looks like a bear. Or, as a synopsis called it, a gerbil. Well, anyway, the uh, happy reunion between old college buddies is disrupted when uh, this third creature kind of runs out of the trailer and uh, runs into this girl carrying the script and stuff gets all over. Clark announces that he doesn't think of the guy in a suit and changes it to Superboy. And it looks like a 1991 brought Gerard Christopher a new costume because at first I thought maybe it was the lighting, but I looked ahead to uh, the next episode and the colors are a little bit different there too. So I'm guessing it looks like for 1991, Gerard Christopher got a new costume. I don't see any real differences other than the fact that the costume looks more of a royal blue instead of the uh, lighter powder blue that we've seen pretty much from day one. So I'm not sure that's something you'd have noticed in, on your 1991 20-inch uh, tube television but it's definitely something i noticed uh going from one episode to the next i almost wonder if this episode started a two episode block if i'd have noticed the difference in the color but being that i watched these episodes one after the other the difference between the suit as it appeared in superboy lost and as it appeared in this episode is quite different so as far as the monster goes uh, max uh, takes a flamethrower to it and burns it away the things that make you go Hmm. So, Lana and Clark are now debating whether Max needed to kill the monster, but but Clark is suggesting that perhaps Max was afraid something would be discovered. So, Max is having a sudden success, and apparently he's unhappy with it. So, now we go to Max's house, and here are the monsters. Apparently, he's got a whole harem of them, at least three. Like I said, Caliban is the one we saw in the beginning, and uh, when you hear Caliban talk, it, the voice is different, but you can kind of hear a little bit of Bizarro in the voice. And while he's not using the UM stuff, he does kind of talk in uh, kind of short declarative sentences the way Bizarro would as well. So there seem to be some similarities there. And it's almost funny the lengths this show goes to hide Barry Myers' face. I believe we're going to see Barry Myers and his face in uh, the To Be Human two-parter in Season 4 when Bizarro becomes a person. That is something we can look forward to in Season 4. So these monsters have come from some otherworldly place and... They worked for Max's father, and apparently uh, these monsters from this other world are the reasons why Max's dad's movies were so good, because the monsters were real. And Caliban is the only one to have a bit of a conscience, as he tells Max that he's not happy about having had to kill. Max says, you guys did what my father wanted, but you know he fires right back. Your father never made us kill, and Caliban is having a real problem with that. So that's something to kind of you know, stick into your notes as uh, we go on in this episode because it's definitely going to come into play later. So now Clark is questioning Andy, who says he sees monsters in his dreams. And interesting how he says someone else got to be the hero for once. Seemed awful bitter about Superboy uh, after spending an entire season trying to uh, make money off him. Maybe uh, 
Andy's bitter because he never got to make money off a of Superboy. I don't know. So Lana's going to a party with this other guy, and uh, Clark and Andy are going to watch some tapes of Max's uh, father's movie, I think. So now, while they're talking, Andy refers to sophomore year. So now it makes, almost makes it sound like season two was Clark's second year of college, which is something I've thought about and even said on this podcast. But the way he refers to it almost seems as though some time has passed. So has there been a time jump between the two seasons? He could have just said last year, but by saying sophomore year, he makes it sound like some time has passed. So Superboy has been around less than five years, according to the previous episode. So say he appeared four, almost five years ago, and seasons one and two were freshman and sophomore year. This could be as many as slightly less than three years after season two. There's no way to really know. And I know at the beginning of this season, Clark and Lana were described as interns, but all my internships at college were one day a week. I mean, maybe two. I mean, I had to go to class too, so I couldn't be there all the time like they are. It almost seemed like they're working full time here. And then we're going to have the discrepancy in the final episode of Clark's age. So who knows? So Lana's at the party with this uh, guy, and she runs off on him. She uh, says she's going to use the ladies' room, and apparently uh, this kind of thing has happened to this guy before because he kind of mumbles it there. That's what they all say. So Lana is snooping while Andy's watching videos, and he's about to be attacked by Caliban. That's what we think. So now we have some monsters that look like either ants or cockroaches, and uh, one of the monsters that we saw before show up. I will say that for a low-budget show, the makeup on these monsters is very good, on par with what we were getting from Star Trek at the time. So this particular episode couldn't have been cheap to produce. So Lana found the portal, which is behind what appears to be a movie screen, or the screen acts as a portal, one of the two. And she's caught by Max, and another bug person comes through. So Clark returns with the pizza, and he finds Andy gone, and changes into Superboy when he saw, like, the Caliban monster on TV. Because he made the connection between the movie and the box. So Superboy shows up at Max's, just as Max is about to send Lana into the monster world. And... I thought maybe Andy had told Caliban what happened off screen, but apparently Caliban listened to Andy and Clark talking and heard that Max killed Ajax to cover his trail. And Caliban just drags Max into the monster world as the portal closes. But, you know, as per his character, Superboy is not going to let that stand. But he punches through uh, the screen and kind of finds the area behind it. And all he can explain is movie magic, which, or just magic, or just supernatural. I've been watching Stranger Things lately. Um, finished season one. I'm a couple episodes into season two. And kind of the way the portal just kind of closed reminds me of the gateway to the upside down in that show. But this episode was, it was okay. I can take or leave Andy McAllister. And there's nothing special about his return here. But it is nice to see a familiar face. With uh, the trio of uh, Clark, Lana, and Andy and uh, so little time actually spent at the Bureau, this kind of does feel like a season two adventure. Although I did find it odd that Lana and Clark didn't know where Andy wound up, which could be another indicator of a time jump as, you know, it is possible to lose touch over time. You know, you know when you're in college in class, you move on and do uh, other things. People drift apart. People come out of lives, come into lives. And, and it wasn't as easy back in 1991 to keep tabs on each other. Not like it is now. So it's quite easy to lose track of each other, especially if a few years have passed. That's all I got for this week. Next time, we're going to see the return of our favorite uh, uh, wedding-obsessed alien princess with Neela and the Beast. And we're going to battle some local Nazis in The Golem. Until then, if you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, 
Just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the shows should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. Until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Manascreen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.